Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Now, we've all been there, I'm sure. Something happens in life and we don't know what to do. Trials, troubles, they might... Uh, let me just start this off. Trials and troubles might hit us so swiftly and so forcefully that we, we don't know what to do. We're faced with a choice or a decision that we need to make, but with it comes feelings of uncertainty, uh, risk, emotional kind of exposure, and we don't know what to do. Sometimes we find ourselves at a crossroads or a dead end or on a path that seems to go nowhere or it, it looks like it's leading us into unexpected waters and we don't know what to do. Could be small things, could be big things, but we all probably know that kind of stomach-churning feeling of not quite knowing what to do when we're faced with a situation that we didn't expect. For instance, maybe the world's eyes has been fixed on the pandemic for the last 18 months and the government has told us what to do, but now since the 19th of July, we don't know what to do. Do we wear a mask? Do we keep socially distanced? Do we shake hands? Do we hug? How many households should we mix with? Sometimes we don't know what to do. Perhaps it's closer to home. Perhaps it's a situation where you find yourself in uh, an unexpected situation, circumstance, and you're confused by it. You don't know what to do. Or maybe it's an overwhelming situation where you're experiencing trouble in your job or in your family or your kids are out of control or your marriage isn't as strong as you would like or your spouse's sin is uh, causing you trouble or there's indifference towards God that you feel or that you see in your family and you don't know what to do. Or maybe you just feel helpless and you feel like you're clinging on by a thread in the face of a situation that you don't know what to do. So, I was thinking about this and the, the, ter the sermon title this morning is What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. And I thought, well, let's go to the fountain of all wisdom that is Google to see what they say to do when you don't know what to do. So here's results from the top business people and the psychologists that offer their gems of advice. Here's what to do when you don't know what to do. Focus on the ends and your goals and not how you get there. Take action. Get a second opinion. Sleep on it. Be comfortable with consequences. Smile. Focus on your core values. Remember to breathe. Trust your gut. Get more information. Unplug from the world. Exercise. Wake up early. Watch an inspirational movie. Get a change of scenery. Be confident in yourself. Amen. Let's sing. No. Of course, some of those suggestions might be useful in some ways at some points in our lives. Remembering to breathe perhaps is a very useful piece of advice. But if that's all that we cling to in moments of uncertainty, then Lord help us. Because they will, they're not enough, are they? They're not ultimate solutions to what to do when you don't know what to do. Well, the good news today is the Bible tells us what to do when we don't know what to do. And that's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, which speaks directly into these kinds of situations and circumstances. So let's read it together 
Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. Now this one verse wonder falls in the middle of a story of a king who felt overwhelmed by fear, who was helpless to protect and care for the people that he was responsible for, and that king is a man named Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat, we learn from 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 6, he was one of the good kings of Judah, and God protected him from attack, from enemy invasion and from attack uh, and we're told that in 2 Chronicles 17, verse 10. But at the beginning of our chapter, in, in chapter 20, we discover that God has loosened his sovereign grip over the surrounding nations and allowed Judah to come under threat. And for the nations of, uh, of Moab uh, and the Ammonites and another, Muonites, I think it is, they, they, they are allowed, under God's sovereignty, to come against Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat discovers at the beginning of chapter 20, if you look at it with me, that three armies of three surrounding nations have conspired together to um, kind of come and together and mount a massive assault on Judah. So the Ammonites, and with them some of the Menunites and the Moabites, they came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And then we're told Jehoshaphat's response in verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. I love how honest the Bible is about Jehoshaphat's response. When he got news of impending doom that was heading over the horizon to affect him, he was afraid. He wasn't Superman, he was human, just like you and me. The odds weren't looking great for him, and he was afraid. He was fearful. Now, probably most of us will never, ever come under the attack of three massive armies who are mounting an assault on us and marching towards our door. You would be jolly unlucky if that happened to you. But we can all relate to overwhelming circumstances that make us feel helpless that make us feel afraid. You know, how often, if you're a parent, have you told one of your children, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of? And yet, the reality in, is, in this world, there is lots of things to be afraid of. It might not be monsters under the bed, but there are lots of things to be afraid of. Exams can be scary. New relationships can be scary. Moving house can be scary. Cancer can be scary. So to tell our children, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of, is actually to do them a disservice. It would be better to say, there are lots of things to be afraid of, but nothing that God is afraid of. There's nothing that God can't handle. 
For admitting fear and weakness is, is not a natural human response. If you look at social media statuses and profiles and so forth, you will find carefully crafted and curated images of people who want to put forward strength and sufficiency and success. And rarely will you read about broken people, about lonely people, about despairing people, about people falling apart or falling into sin or struggling to follow God or to trust God or people who are afraid and it's the same when we come to church most of us respond to the question how are you doing with I'm fine thank you and Jehoshaphat could have pretended that he wasn't afraid Jehoshaphat could have pretended that he had it all together he could have gathered his generals together and his army to prepare a military response but we're we're told here in verse 3 that his first response was fear and that's quite remarkable isn't it But then the response to that fear was unique as well in some ways for a king of Judah. For here's what he did. Read on with me in verse 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And all Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From the cities of Judah they came, and they came to the temple in Jerusalem to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat's example is remarkable. He's fearful, but he calls the people to fast and to pray together in the temple and to seek help. His first inclination is not to turn... uh, outwards, if you like, to other nations, to to people who are around him to make alliances and say, well, three armies are coming against me, so let's find another three armies who can stand with me and maybe together we can defeat the enemy. He doesn't turn inwards either to find strength or motivation or power or confidence from within to face his enemies. He didn't kind of get his generals together and give them a pep talk and say, you know, we're outnumbered three to one, but I think we could do it if we just try hard enough. Neither does he turn inwards with self-pity and fall into a kind of crippling, paralyzing fear that says, oh, woe is me, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. No, instead he turns upwards to seek God in prayer. Perhaps he had in mind the words that God had spoken to Solomon back in chapter 7. If you can flick there, you'll hear what God says to to Solomon in chapter 7, verse 13, where Solomon says, The Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and he said to him, I've heard your prayer and I have chosen this place, this temple in Jerusalem, to be my house, a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. So when I strike under my sovereignty with and disaster befalls you, if my people who are called according to my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And so Jehoshaphat is just responding to what God has already said to him. And so in verse 12, he prays this prayer of response. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And it's instructive for us when we don't know what to do. When our enemies are set against us, when something strikes our lives and we are threatened by Satan's devices in our family, in our marriages, in our kids, in our faith, when we find ourselves in a situation where the odds are stacked against us, where we find the storms of life threatening to engulf us and to overwhelm us and almost to drown us, when we don't know what to do, 2 Chronicles 20 verse 12 tells us what to do. 
fix our eyes on God. Now that can sound a little bit like a Google answer. Breathe. Watch an inspirational movie. Fix your eyes on God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to fix our eyes on God? Well, verse 12 that we're looking at is the summation and the culmination of Jehoshaphat's entire prayer that begins in verse 6. And his entire prayer shows us three things that contribute to what it means to fix our eyes on God. So let's read verse 6 to verse 12 together. Here's Jehoshaphat's prayer in full. O Lord God, the God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they've lived in this land and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying that if disaster comes upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not now execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Three things the whole prayer tells us to do in helping us to fix our eyes on God. The first one is this. We fix our eyes on God by calling to mind God's character. Look again at verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations and in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. The first thing that Jehoshaphat does to help him and his people fix his eyes on God is to remind them that God is creator, he's the sustainer of the world, and that nothing happens outside of his will. So when everybody else is losing their head, when everybody else is freaking out around you, when you fear that the sky is falling in, we must fix our eyes on God by remembering his character. Remembering his glory, his power and his might, that we serve a loving and a merciful and a faithful sovereign God who is untouched by sin and suffering, who is powerful and glorious and mighty. We remember his character. That's how we fix our eyes on him. We, we remember who he is. We study him. We tell ourselves about what, his, what he is like. And when we begin praying about situations when we don't know what to do, if we begin by ascribing glory and power to God and we reflect on his character, his power, his holiness, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his goodness, his holiness, his mercy, his faithfulness, his justice, when we remind ourselves that should have an effect that confidence and hope and faith floods into our hearts and begins to fill us with new perspective that we're not alone in this, that God is with us. And that will mysteriously in the providence of God by the Spirit begin to fill our hearts with a peace that surpasses understanding. For if that God, that God in heaven, 
the ruler over all kingdoms and all nations who is full of power and might so that none can stand against him. If that God is with us, Paul says in Romans 8, who then can be against us? So one of the ways we fix our eyes on God when we don't know what to do is to remember and call to mind his character. So if you're in that situation right now, get out a systematic theology, get out a book about God and his character, like Packers knowing God and read about God. Or go to some of those scripture verses, Exodus 34, that tell us about who God is. And remind ourselves, call to mind his character. The second way we fix our minds, uh, our eyes on God is, is by calling to mind his promises. We see Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat doing that in, in verses 7 to 9. His hope is built on the promises and the presence of God. So what does he say? He addresses God as our God and the God of our fathers, indicating that he recognizes God to be the unchanging one who is, he's faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was faithful to Abraham. He's faithful to David. He was faithful to Solomon. He'll be faithful to us. And so Jehoshaphat begins to recount to God the promises that God has made us. You promised us this land. You brought us into this land. You've chosen to dwell here in the temple in Jerusalem. You put your name here. You promised to help those who seek you. Your glory is at stake, God. If you don't come through for us, because you've put your name here. You've told the world that you're our God. And now if this mighty horde marches against us and they're victorious, what will they say about you? But we know that you're passionate about your glory and you're faithful to your promises. And so Jehoshaphat fixes his eyes on God by remembering what God has done in the past and by remembering God's promises that he has made. See, Jehoshaphat understood that God had done great things. He had done amazing things to create and establish his people and that he would do great things to protect his people. And therefore they and we can trust him. For in the same way, when we feel overwhelmed by circumstances, there is steady hope that lives and endures in the promises of God towards us in Christ. And if Jehoshaphat had reason to trust God, you promised us the land, you gave it to Abraham, you'll come through for us. How much more do we have to trust in? For we have seen Christ. So Paul will again say in Romans 8, if God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not now also together with him freely and graciously give us all that we need? Jesus is our good shepherd who will lead us through the shadow of the valley of death or the valley of the shadow of death and he will pursue us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Psalm 23 says, Jesus is the one who Isaiah prophesies about in Isaiah 42. He will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. He's the one who Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, who pours out his all-sufficient grace in our weakness. And he's the one whom the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, uh, we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. All of these promises find their yes and amen in our Saviour Jesus Christ. And when we are afraid, when we don't know what to do, we fix our eyes on God by calling to mind his sure and steady promises. And thirdly, we fix our eyes on God by calling out for help. 
That's what Jehoshaphat does in verse 12. He displays his trust and his dependence upon God by humbly admitting his weakness and his powerlessness. Did you notice that? That's not the normal thing that kings do. We are powerless, he says, against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do. He knew that he and his army were no match for these, the attacking, assaulting army. He knew that if they were going to get out of this, it would have to be God who rescued them because they didn't have the power or the wisdom or the strength to do it. And so he pleads with God for help. Rescue your people in our hour of need. Verse 12 is one of the most powerful and beautiful expressions of trust that's found anywhere in the scriptures. We don't know what to do but our eyes are fixed on you. And for us, in the face of the onslaught of life, in the face of situations that cause rising anxiety, in the face of situations where the odds are stacked against us, when we do not know what to do, how do we respond? Do we just put our Mr. Fix-It hat on and say, right, now i just got to think really hard and fix this for myself. Some of us are prone to do that. Some of us go into denial. Oh, no, that's not happening. No, 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 no. It'll pass. It's not real. Some of us go into self-pity. Why, why? Why is this happening to me? And some of us just descend into anxiety and we, we project out into the future to the nth degree, the, the situation, the worst case scenario, and then we panic. And actually what we need to do is heed the words of Jehoshaphat and his example, his first inclination was after fear, I'm going to God. I'm going to ask his help. I'm going to my king. Do we have that inclination within us that we trust God's covenant love enough to go to him as the first port of call for guidance, for protection, for help? Or do we give in to anxiety? Do we give in to fear? Do we shake ourselves loose from that kind of that anchor of the soul that God is supposed to be and we dishonor him by acting as if we don't have a heavenly father who cares for us? Jehoshaphat's example, the one that we must learn, is to fix our eyes on God by humbly laying down our self-sufficiency, by joining him in confessing our weakness, our inability, our helplessness, and throwing ourselves upon God for help. There's another thing that Jehoshaphat does that I think we could really learn a lesson from. I could certainly learn a lesson from this. Do you notice right back at the beginning, he calls a fast and he asks others to join him in praying. He invites other people into his fear and into his struggles. He says, come and join me, stand with me, pray with me. Let me share this burden with you so that you can help me carry it. Let's fix our eyes together on God. You know, how many of us think, oh, it would be just simpler and easier if I just did this, if I just faced this on my own? And we turn inwards and we say, this has come against me and I, and I just got to deal with it myself. I don't want to let anybody in. I'll come up with the answers. But God has placed us in a body. 
his body, the, the people of God, the church, the, a family that is supposed to manifest his love towards one another through our mutual care for one another, through our prayer for one another. And if we hide behind the metaphorical masks now, not, not the physical ones, if we hide behind metaphorical masks, if we put up barriers, if we keep people at arm's length, then in the midst of the trials and the challenges that will inevitably come to us, we will miss out on the grace of God that could come to us through his people. Now, don't misunderstand me. Doing these three steps, remembering his character, remembering his promises and calling out to him for help, that's not necessarily a formula for no more problems in your life. Sorry about that. If it was, I'd bottle it and sell it. But the promise here is God will provide all we need to face circumstances in ways that will bring him glory and that will shape us into the likeness of his son. So despite what we might be facing right now or what we might face into the future, we are to seek the face of the Lord and when we do, we can be assured we will find him. And that he will provide every grace and every comfort and every encouragement and every wisdom that we need to help us through it. And as we keep our eyes fixed on him, we will discover something else that's surprising. That even in the midst of difficulties, we will experience joy. Look at verse 13 with me. We haven't seen this yet. As Jehoshaphat draws together the people of God to pray, God sends encouragement in unexpected ways. Delivering a prophetic word through a man called Jehaziel, who declares in, well, in verse 15, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Here's God's response. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. So tomorrow... Go down against them. Do you see that? The promise of God. Do not be afraid. God will fight for you. And despite the overwhelming odds, he will win. And the king and the people received this word with joy. Look at the response of Jehoshaphat in verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head to the ground and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord and they worshipped him. In the midst of the suffering, they received God's truth and his word and his promises and they believed it and they responded with worship. There was a joy that came to them, a deep-seated joy. We can trust our God. We have hope and we will praise him. And then the next morning as Jehoshaphat rounds up his army and the people to go out to battle, he says, let's believe the word of God. Let's get ready to go out. Let's get ready to face him. Trusting God doesn't mean sitting back, relaxing, putting your feet up and just hoping that God will come through for you. It's taking responsibility. In verse 17, you see all of these active verbs. Stand firm, hold position, go out against them, which which actually means put on your armor and go. So they take responsibility. They trust God, but they are understanding God's going to fight for us. And then Jehoshaphat organizes the front lines in in an unusual way. He says... Oh, swordsmen, no, you don't go to the front. No, chariots, no, you don't go to the front. My best and mightiest men, no, no, you don't go to the front. Who's going to the front? The singers. 
It's a little bit like this. I hope Ash and Emily don't mind this. If we were, you know, under attack now, we would probably send Ash out. We would say, that is the most sensible thing to do. He is the biggest and strongest man in the room, except for me. And we would go out together and we would win. And God says, no, 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 no. Send Emily. And that's not because Emily is, but it's because she's the singer. Because God will fight on our behalf. It was his battle. And he loves to do things in ways that show that he is the victorious king. Think about Gideon. Think about the walls of Jericho. God delights to show that he is the victor by stacking the odds against him and then coming through for us. And as people fix their eyes on God, verse 22, they sing, they worship, and God moves in miraculous ways and he routes the armies. He turns them on each other and they begin to annihilate each other and God is victorious and God delivers Judah from their enemies. So what do we do when we don't know what to do? We fix our minds, our eyes on God. We call to mind his character. We call to mind his promises. We call out to him for help and we call out to him in worship. And in whatever circumstances we face, big or small, we can trust God enough to pray this prayer. When we don't know what to do, we will fix our eyes on you. And right now, if you have burdens that you haven't brought before the Lord, instead of ruminating about them, instead of thinking anxious thoughts about them, pray about them. Go and ask others to join you in praying. Humble yourselves, confess your inability, your weakness, your need, and throw yourself upon God. For our victory is as sure as the victory of Judah because of Christ. When I was studying this week, I was reminded of the, the words of this old hymn. You'll probably remember it. don't know why I'm looking at you when you say that. You're old enough to remember it, but your mind might not. <laughs> Here it is. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray.